Hi, I'm Lee and this is True Crime Queen. Today we're looking at three cases where a person went missing and despite extensive searches, they were not found. The cases left loved ones hoping that they were safe but fearing the worst. Their hope was dashed when police obtained a murder confession detailing how the victim had been killed. But years later, sometimes decades, the purported victim reappeared alive and well. On the 26th of July 1984, Petra Pasitka, a 24-year-old computer science student, was living in a dormitory in the German town of Braunschweig when she went missing. She was due to attend her younger brother Carsten's birthday at her parents' home, and she was going to stay in her parents' home for two weeks when they were on vacation. While she was house-sitting, she would be working on her thesis for a computer science course. The thesis would be about 100 pages, and it was on the peculiarities of computer language. And she would also look after her younger brother, Carsten, who lived at home. She didn't arrive, she didn't call and let anyone know that she was not coming. She just disappeared. The murder of a 14-year-old girl had taken place at the bus station in Wolfsburg a year prior, and that must have played through her parents' minds, fearing that she may be another victim of the killer who had not yet been caught. Her parents and younger brother waited and waited for her, but when she didn't arrive, they started a search for her, and her brother formally reported her missing. The police came out in droves to look for her, and the search uncovered nothing. She seemed to have just disappeared. The police investigated and were able to put a timeline together of her day. It seems that she was going to buy her brother a computer ribbon as a birthday present, and she went to a store to look for something suitable. They didn't have what she wanted, and the store offered to order it in for her, but she declined. After this, she went to the dentist where she had an appointment from 2 o'clock to 3 p.m. where she had two fillings. She made a further follow-up appointment for two weeks later. She returned to the dormitory and before she left, she gave her room keys to a fellow student and asked him to take care of her plants while she was away for two weeks. Some reports say that witnesses seen her get on a bus bound for her parents' home about 40 kilometres away in Wolfsburg and others claim no one's seen her get on the bus. The trail went cold and there were no leads, no sightings, and thankfully, no bodies located. On the 11th of January, 1985, a German crime show, Aktensigen XY, publicised her disappearance and her face, and it became well known in Germany as the young woman who had mysteriously disappeared. The show asked for the public's assistance in locating her, but even this nationwide public appeal didn't result in any leads. Nothing happened for some years. Petra's family still held out hope to find her alive, but there were just no leads. And then finally, there was a break, but it wasn't the one that they hoped for. A 19-year-old student and carpenter's apprentice, Gunther K, was arrested for the murder of the 14-year-old girl at the Wolfsburg bus stop in March of 1985. He was sentenced to eight years in juvenile detention. During that time, in 1987, he also confessed to the murder of Petra, but he later withdrew the confession. Even though there was no body, and usually in these circumstances, it's 10 years before someone is declared dead in Germany, she was declared dead just five years after her disappearance in 1989. But that wasn't the end of the matter. In 2015, Miss Snyder, who was 55 and living in Dusseldorf in Germany, rang the police to report a burglary. She'd been living in Dusseldorf for 11 years, and before that, other cities in West Germany, using different names. 
When the police attended to investigate the burglary, they asked her for proof of identity as part of their investigation. And eventually, she confessed she wasn't Miss Snyder, but Petra. For the last 31 years, she'd lived off the grid without security cards, bank accounts or driver's licences. She was paid cash in her work and she paid her bills in cash, doing what the police describe as illicit work, so her identity would not be known. During that time, she had never had to produce papers to prove her identity, but she was able to produce her 30-year-old student ID card that she'd kept only to verify her identity. And it seems that she had voluntarily chosen to disappear. She'd carefully planned her new life. She'd been saving money, 4,000 Deutschmarks, and had rented an apartment under an assumed name in preparation for her disappearance. When the time came, she just assumed her new name and new life in another city. Her mother and brother, Carsten, were in shock and tears when they heard the news that she was still alive. Her father had already passed away. A family reunion was not on the cards, though, as Petra declined to reconnect with them. The family hopes that one day she will change her mind, and they ask the police to act as intermediary to deliver a letter to her. One of the police officers who took part in the initial search, Commissioner Dick Bossy, was shocked when he heard the news. He said, It never occurred to me that we would ever be able to resolve the case. We all thought she was dead. By some oversight, her files were still at the station rather than being destroyed when she was declared dead, as is the custom, and they now could close those files. German psychologist Gert Zimek explained to the BID newspaper that without seeing her in person, it seems like she has a psychological disorder called a disassociative fugue, which is quite rare. He said that patients affected by this disease embark on long and aimless journeys from home after experiencing a psychologically demanding situation. They behave normally to those around them and often travel thousands of kilometres away from their home and adopt a new identity. He felt that Perhaps the stress of her demanding theses and the complexity of the area of the work at the time may have been the trigger for her disappearance. Profiler Axel Peterman told the same newspaper that she was probably able to escape detection even with the mass public appeal and TV coverage by changing her appearance and not telling anyone her plans, going to places where she was not known. She was at an advantage because in the 1980s there were no cell phones to track her location. He said if you lived a low-profile life without using government services and back then it was easier to get an apartment with a false name and no documents, then it was easier to avoid detection. The mystery is why did Petra disappear? And it's one that she declines to answer. She was asked if there was any violence or sexual assault, family problems, and she is denied any of this absolutely. Some people theorise that maybe the stress of her course overwhelmed her and she chose a different life. Another theory is that rather than being stressed by her course, it was those skills that she had used to disappear for all those years and fly under the radar. People even believe that she may have been recruited as a spy or worked for an intelligence agency like the East German Stasi. Petra is not saying anything. However, she had to resume her identity after she was found alive and well and had to register that with the German authorities. There were no criminal charges that could be laid against her as she hadn't committed any offences. She wasn't using false or forged identity papers. She just wasn't using anything with an identity on it. And maybe one day Petra will explain why she disappeared and chose not to reunite with her family. Or maybe she will keep it to herself, as she has done all of these years. 
I can't imagine how heartbreaking it must have been for her family to go through the search, the thought that she may be dead, murdered, and then the joy that she's alive but doesn't want to be in their life. I can't imagine either what Petra has been through wanting to disappear for some reason and go it alone and living wondering when or if she'll be recognised and discovered. It's a heartbreaking case for all involved. In 1986, Zhang Ziyu was a young girl living in a small village in China. Through an introduction service, she was introduced to Xiexi Yang Lin, who was older than her and in his 20s. He lived in a village nearby. The introduction proved to be satisfactory, and the two married not long afterwards. They settled into home life in Xi's village, living with his family, and they started working the land to produce food for a small market garden business. Soon Jung fell pregnant, and the couple welcomed their child, a baby girl they named Shi Hu Agong. Like many couples, they wanted to make a better life for themselves and their family. They felt that the village was too small for this and wouldn't significantly improve their financial circumstances. So the family made the tough decision to say goodbye to village life, close their business and all moved to a larger area called Maidian Town. In this area, they knew that there would be better jobs and living conditions and more opportunities to improve their financial circumstances and life for their daughter. They applied for jobs and she was successful in becoming a policeman at Maidian Town Police Station in Jin Gaishan. This was a great job opportunity for him. He was hired to work as part of the security patrol team for the town and he had a job that had status as well as a steady income and now a career path. Jung was also able to obtain employment working at a local machinery factory. Xi's mother also lived with them and I believe that she was able to mind their young daughter while the couple worked hard at their new jobs. The couple were now earning a good income with good jobs between them and their life was good until it wasn't. The marriage hit a rough patch when she met another woman. He started to see her unbeknown to Jung, but sadly the town knew all about it. Soon the locals were gossiping about the affair and it wasn't long before the news hit Jung's ears. She was devastated. They argued often about the affair and Jung felt humiliated, not just by the affair, but also that everyone seemed to know about it and were talking about it behind her back. Jung went from a happy woman content with the life they had created to a woman that was exhibiting disturbing and harmful behaviour. She was shocked when he returned home after buying food for breakfast one day he heard his young daughter crying out. This was not the normal cry of a child, it was alarming. And their daughter seemed scared and frantic. He was terrified as he ran through the house to find his daughter, wondering what could possibly be happening to her to make her cry out like that. And it was as bad as he could have imagined. His wife Jung was yelling and cursing at their daughter while she strangled her. He quickly grabbed his daughter and said to his wife, Are you crazy? Children can't be beaten like this. Jung said nothing. She didn't defend herself or make excuses or argue. She just stared blankly at him. And it was a long time before she finally spoke and then it was to ask, Who are you? It was clear to she that his wife was suffering from an illness. He kept asking her what was wrong, but no matter how many times he asked, she did not answer. As well as not speaking, she wasn't eating and she withdrew from the world, staying at home. It seems this episode lasted about a week, and then she gradually returned to her normal self. But it wasn't an isolated incident. Every now and again, the behaviour would return, and the process would repeat itself with Jung having no memory of who her family was, not eating and withdrawing into herself. She did not know what to do, but he knew that this behaviour could not continue 
and Jung needed professional help. So in 1994, when Jung was experiencing another episode, he asked for a day off work from his job at the police station, and the reason was to take his wife to see a doctor at the hospital. But it wasn't that easy to see a doctor in the 1990s in China. Things have changed now. Back then, most of the costs of seeing a doctor and visits to hospital had to be paid by the citizen on their own. And due to the lower wages and economic conditions, residents in rural areas where Xi and Jung lived generally could not afford to pay for health care. Xi wanted to help his wife, and although they were doing better financially than when they first met, they still only had minimal money and not enough savings to pay the cost of health services. So she took his daughter to see a friend of his, Li Wenhua, who lived in the country, and he felt that he would have enough money that he could lend him some, and he could use that to pay for the doctor. He hadn't planned this trip well, though, and hadn't told Eli he was coming to visit. And after father and daughter made the trip to the country, she was disappointed to find no one at home. They had no choice but to return home empty-handed and being no closer to getting the doctor for his wife. Jung was asleep when they arrived home, so after putting his daughter to bed, he sat up drinking wine until he fell asleep as well. He woke up at 2.30am and noticed that his wife was no longer asleep in the bed. He looked through the other rooms, but she wasn't there either, and she wasn't in the house at all she disappeared. He took to the streets, walking up and down, wondering how long she'd been gone for and where she could possibly be. She hadn't been herself for a few days now, which was why he was so desperate to get a doctor for her. And who knows where she could have gone in that state. There was no sign of her anywhere. The next day he had posters printed and handed them out, asking if anyone had seen his wife. There were no signs of her anywhere. He reported her missing to the police, but no one had sighted her, there were no leads, and it seemed she had completely vanished. His extended family that they lived with helped him with his daughter, and no doubt she was pining for her mother, and it must have been a very confusing and heartbreaking time for the family. Days turned into weeks, which turned into three months, and then there was some news. It was the worst. A man was walking his child to school when he looked over at the pond in the village. There was something floating on top. Curious, he walked closer to see what it could be. And as he got closer to the object, he could smell a foul odour. Undeterred, he continued to move closer until he could see it wasn't an object, but a decayed female corpse. The police were called and a post-mortem revealed that the female body had been dead for at least two months. She was 155 centimetres in height and about 30 years old and had given birth. Jung was a match for that description and, as the body had deteriorated, a visual examination could not confirm the identity. Jung's brother and mother, though, positively identified the body when they saw it as Jung's, as did the local police. Her husband, she, never saw the body or identified it, or was asked to do so. The visual identification was accepted as DNA tests had to be paid for by the family, and the expense of 20,000 won was too much for the family. When she questioned it, he was told by the police, it's not you to have the final say. The government is certainly not wrong. The postmortem also revealed that this was not a case of accidental drowning or misadventure, as the woman had been hit on the head with a blunt object, likely a stone or a rock, and the police had only one suspect in mind. Her husband, she, and he was promptly arrested. He was taken in for questioning and confessed. 
He said that when he and his daughter had come home that day from their trip to the country, he had taken his wife to the melon shed and locked her in it. Instead of going out to look for his wife at 2.30am, he really went to the melon shed, took his wife to the pond, beat her with stones and threw her in. He then returned home and went through the process of reporting his wife missing. On the 28th of August 1994, the former Jingguangzhou District Prosecutorate prosecuted Shi Xiaoling for the suspected crime of intentional homicide. Nearly four months later, on the 13th of October 1994, the court ruled that Shi had killed his wife, sentencing him to death with a deprivation of political rights for his life. But on the 10th of January 1995, after the case was appealed to the Hubei Provincial Court, the court made a ruling to revoke the first judgment and sent the case for retrial. Six months later, on the 15th of June, the Jingshan County Court sentenced Xi to 15 years imprisonment with a deprivation of political rights for five years for intentional murder. Then, months later, on the 22nd of September, the Jin Goman Municipal Court dismissed the appeal from Xi and upheld the original judgment. And this was the final ruling in the procedure. Then, Xi was sentenced and had to serve his sentence in the Shaoyang prison. Although he had confessed, his family didn't believe that he was capable of killing his wife and they set out to prove his innocence. His mother, young W. Yu Sung, recalled a noise she had heard the night Jung disappeared. She had been home all day and hadn't seen her son because he was in the country. And around 11.30 that night, she heard someone open the door and go out. At that time, she thought it was her son going out to use the toilet. And as she wanted to say hello to him, she called out to him a few times, but no one responded. After a few minutes, young Yu Sung heard another family member coming inside. It seemed like he was going to lock the door, so she shouted out to him, Don't lock the door, my son is still outside relieving himself. But when she didn't come inside for a while, his mother went to his room. There he was, sleeping soundly. It wasn't she that had been outside. The door was then latched for the night. Later that night, at 2am, Shi's mother and the rest of the household was woken by Shi in a panic. He couldn't find his wife and was telling everyone that Jung had disappeared. And it was then that his mother realised it must have been Jung that went out at 11.30pm. Despite telling everyone in the village and the police what she knew about that evening, no one believed her. Everyone thought she was just covering up for her son. After talking to the police officials, she was told that they would only look further if she could provide evidence that Jung was alive. She wasn't dissuaded by the fact that Jung's only family had already identified the body in the pond as Jung. Instead, she decided that the family must save her son and she had to find evidence that Jung was alive. It was a hard task because no one believed her. She always responded with the fact that she knew her son and knew he was innocent, even though he had confessed. By now, she had given a number of different versions of what had happened that night, but they all resulted in the fact that he killed his wife, but his mother refused to accept this as true. She put up missing persons notices. She placed ads on radio and TV, and in the end, her hard work and money found a lead. She found that a woman in Waialing village, who was called Zhong Yi Ching, and she had appeared in the village at the relevant time. She was the right age of 30 and had told people in the community that she had a five-year-old child. As well as all these details, the other reason that it was a promising lead was that the name she was using of Zhong Yi Ching, because that was the nickname that Zhong went by. She didn't have anywhere to stay or knew anyone in the village, but she was fortunate enough to come across two kind women who took her in, fed her, and gave her somewhere to sleep. 
She didn't stay long and by the next afternoon she'd left the village and didn't return. Young Yu Sung felt that this was enough evidence to prove that Jung was alive. And if she could prove that, then it could be used as evidence that there was an assumption that Jung was alive. And this would mean that her son Shi could appeal again. To have this information accepted as evidence though, a certificate by the local party branch needed to be obtained. The party, however, stated that there was insufficient evidence to issue the certificate just on the basis of the sightings and the statements by the two women. This was a setback, but she didn't give up. For another two years, she continued her one-woman investigation to prove her son's innocence and that Jung was alive. It was exhausting and stressful, and she ended up passing away, still believing in her son's innocence. The role of investigator was then passed to Shi's brother, Shi Su Olin, and it was now up to him to try and find Jung and do what he could to get his brother released from prison. When he visited his brother in prison, he pleaded with him to continue the work their mother had started, saying, Brother, I'm really wronged. You know me. How could I kill someone? You must help me. Appeal. Return my innocence. He started his process by collecting signatures for a petition for Xi's release on the basis that Jong was alive. And this was another blow for the family when the police reaffirmed their previous position, saying, we've seen many cases like yours and we shall only consider this case again if you are able to find Jung and bring her back. Years went by and Xi continued to protest his innocence and his little brother continued to try and find if Jung was alive. And it must have crossed their minds that maybe Jung was dead, maybe she was the body in the pond, but both brothers clung to hope. In 1995, Shi Su Lin was sentenced to 41 days of administrative detention for petitioning the authorities. His work at trying to help his brother had made him fall foul of China's strict laws. Ten years went by. She still sat in prison, deteriorating physically and still protesting his innocence. But he had exhausted all avenues legally and there was no compelling evidence to reopen his case. He'd missed seeing his daughter grow up and time spent with his mother before she passed. And he must have felt for his brother who had taken on the role of investigators. And then... 11 years after Jung disappeared, on the 28th of March 2005, everything would change. Jung's mother would get the shock of her life. She was sitting outside enjoying the sunshine when she heard a female voice calling to her. Mum, I'm Qinghua. She looked up when she heard the voice and instantly recognised it. The voice and the woman standing before her was her daughter, Jung. Overcome with shock, she said, Oh my God, sweet Qinghua, you, aren't you dead? The news quickly travelled around the village and the neighbours soon arrived to view this miracle. Jung was back from the dead. There was no doubt it was her. Everyone recognised the woman that they all believed was dead and whose body had been found in a pond. They were shocked and relieved at the same time. It didn't take long for the news to reach Shi's family and they quickly went to the home hoping that the rumours were true. And when they came face to face with Jung, they knew it was true. They instantly recognised each other. Both families were overjoyed and everyone hugged and cried. Jung's family would now have their daughter back in their lives and Shi's family now had the evidence that they had been hoping for. Jung was alive. This was the miracle they'd hoped for. The hope that had made their mother work so tirelessly, and then Shi's brother, and the hope that now she would be released from prison. Watching this family reunion nearby, but not taking part, was a man and a ten-year-old boy. So where had Jung been? Jung had bouts of mental illness, and it's not known exactly the diagnosis, but on the night that she went missing, she'd been experiencing one of these bouts for a couple of days. And she recalled that she suddenly felt very afraid of her husband. So when everyone was asleep, she walked out of the home. She didn't have a plan, she didn't have any money, but she knew she just had to keep walking. Along the way, strangers helped her, gave her food and shelter. But she never stopped long in one place, a day, a night or so. 
and she just continued on her way without any destination in mind. She ended up walking some 420-odd kilometres and she found herself in Chenji village in Zhaochong, Shandong, and her life would take another turn. There she met an elderly couple and, like many kind strangers before them, they took her in and fed and cared for her. This couple, though, did more. They spent time with her. They listened to her. They nurtured her. And they tried to understand the problems she was having. And instead of staying just one night with the couple, as was her habit, she stayed on and really became a part of their family. As time went on, the couple continued to get to know her. And once they understood her problems, they offered to find and pay for a doctor to help her. And due to this generous couple, for the first time, Jung was able to have her medical illness treated and diagnosed. And she was able to start the process of learning who she was because at this time she really didn't know who she was or her name, only her nickname. She responded well to the medical treatment and Jung finally started to feel her old self again, but she still didn't know who she was. She was indebted to the couple and wanted to repay them though for their generosity. She didn't have money or a job, so she repaid them by becoming part of their family and marrying their son. The newly married couple set up home with the parents and not long after she gave birth to their son. Everyone cared for Jung in this home, her new husband, her in-laws and in this atmosphere she continued to make progress with her mental health. Bit by bit, memories of her former life returned to her, including her family and where they lived. She started to write letters to her family. They never replied. She wasn't deterred, and she started to write to extended family members. But her letters to them were ignored as well. The family had received the letters and had ignored them. After all, they had buried Jung. She was dead, so she couldn't write letters. They dismissed the letters as cruel pranks. Jung decided that there was nothing she could do but to return to the village in person. Her in-laws and husband supported this decision and her desire to reconnect with the family that she now remembered. Her husband accompanied her, together with their 10-year-old son, to this surprise family reunion. There was one person, though, missing from this reunion, Jung's daughter, and she rushed back from Shenzhen, and the two enjoyed an emotional reunion, hugging and crying and getting to know her new half-brother. This poor young girl had last seen her mother when she was just five years old. Her father was in prison, her grandmother had passed away, and her life had been turned upside down. And now that she had her mother back, it was time to set about having her father freed from prison. Jung's DNA was tested, which confirmed what everyone knew already, and she was positively identified. And this was all the evidence that Xi's family needed to go to court once more and appeal against his conviction. On the 30th of March 2005, Jingmen City Intermediate Court urgently rescinded the judgment and ruling in Xi's case and requested the Jingshan County Court to immediately retry the case. Xi was immediately released on bail and almost two weeks later, on the 13th of April 2005, Xi Xiang Lin, who is now 39 years old, was finally declared innocent and released. He had been in prison since he was 28 for 11 years. The man that was released may have been broken physically, but his compassion for others certainly wasn't. He had been wrongfully convicted and missed so much of his life and watching his daughter grow up, but he didn't hold a grudge. He wasn't bitter. He said, I always believe the law is just, even if I was wrongly jailed for so long. He told the China Daily, there is justice in the world, in fact. Policemen and other law enforcers made errors. It was not a problem with the law itself. When asked how he felt about Jung, he did not hate her at all. He said, if she had not reappeared, maybe I would have been wronged for life. He also said that he did not plan to sue Jung for bigamy, as Jung had remarried without divorcing him. After his release, he was taken for medical treatment at a local hospital for the physical injuries he had sustained during his time in prison. But why did he confess? 
When she confessed, it was after he had been taken to a house for 10 days in a remote location. He was beaten, given only two small bowls of rice each day, deprived of sleep, and he finally broke down and told his interrogators what they wanted to hear. But when he confessed, and each time after with different accounts, no one queried it, no one questioned it, no one examined the evidence to ensure it fits the details of the confession. And neither the prosecution or the defence raised discrepancies in the accounts, of which there were many. They just accepted the confession of a broken man. And at one stage she claimed, a policeman put his gun to my head and said, believe me, I could shoot you right now. She's account of the circumstances of his confession is not unusual with international human rights groups claiming police torture is widespread in China. He had complained from his prison cell over the interrogation in 1998, but he'd never had a response to his complaint. While he was in jail, he was badly beaten. He now has scars all over him, broken fingers, veins showing through, numbness in his legs, and was overall a frail man at 39 with failing eyesight. The Hubei provincial government started an investigation into those who had interrogated him, which led to his wrongful conviction, and it ultimately resulted in the resignation of a couple of judges. Apparently at this time in China there was a quota that judges were to adhere to, and corners were often cut in order to reach that quota. Each particular court was of the view that any mistakes would be rectified by other courts in the appeal process. One of those involved in Xi's initial interrogation that was under investigation took his life before the report had been finalised. The cost to Xi was not only his loss of freedom and reputation, but the experiences and time he'd lost with his family. He said, My mother, who died from the stress of continuously appealing, cannot be bought. Eleven years of freedom cannot be bought. Schooling of my daughter, which was stopped because of poverty, cannot be bought. Xi's lawyer sued Jingchang County Public Security Bureau for the wrongful conviction, and they were successful in obtaining compensation for Xi, amounting to 160,000 won for the loss of income, 66,000 for injuries received during detention, death compensation for the loss of his mother at 220,000 won, and 4,000 compensation to his brother who was detained after petitioning the authorities. In total, 450,000 won. The Intermediate People's Court of Jingmen City were also ordered to pay more than 256,000 won, and the Yamanko Township government also issued a subsidy of 200,000 won to Xi. So far, the family has accumulated more than 900,000 won in compensation. She told the media that he used the compensation money to look after his relatives because he owes them so much. She's daughter had particularly suffered as she was no longer able to continue her education when her father went to prison and instead found herself working at a far younger age than she would have had a life not taken such a turn. He used some of the compensation money to send his daughter to Yi Chang to a secondary school and he also used some of the money to build three new homes, one for his elderly father and suitable for his mobility issues. He himself moved into a small home in town and there he spends days reading and reading the letters that are sent to him from all around the world. His only desire was to see that his brother, who worked so hard to free him from prison, would be to find a wife for him. He said, let's find another daughter-in-law for my brother. My affairs have delayed the family over the years. If I can help, I want to help. She's case is important and this is why he received so many letters from people because it was one that instigated a lot of changes in China's legal system. Now capital punishment cases come under sole authority of the Supreme People's Court and this court requires more investigation than lower courts, and before executions are carried out, there is more investigation, including DNA testing on bodies, rather than the previous way of confirming a body by a height estimate if a visual identification isn't appropriate. 
if Xi's appeals had not been successful previously in reducing his sentence, then it's likely that he would have been executed for a crime he did not commit and when the victim was alive. His case also led the way to more discussion on changes to the legal system in China, including the need for lawyers during the interrogation process and independence of the courts from the administrative and public sectors and a reduction of crimes punishable by death. One change that has already been implemented was the presumption of innocence, meaning it is now up to the prosecution to prove the charges beyond a reasonable doubt, rather than in Xi's case of proving he was innocent by producing Jung. One thing I was not able to find out through my research on this case was the identity of the body found in the pond. I hope that she has been identified and laid to rest. This is such a terrible, tragic case, and my heart goes out to all of those involved. On the 31st of August 1998, Jennifer Kerwin dropped her 14-year-old daughter, Natasha, at Rockhampton North High School. Natasha leant over and gave her a kiss and said, I love you. Jennifer would have no idea that by the end of the day, her family's world would be turned upside down. Natasha did not come home from school that day, and her mother started to worry. Where was she? Had she run away again? She'd done it before. Sometimes it was just hours, sometimes a day or two. Natasha and her mother had been clashing, like many teenagers do at this age, and Natasha was rebelling against her mother's rules, school and life, and perhaps even experiencing the after-effects of her parents' divorce and her father's remarriage. Just a month before she had ran away, but she'd been found two days later at her boyfriend Scott Black's home. He was 22 and Natasha's parents didn't approve of the relationship due to the age difference. No doubt this caused more friction and arguments in the household. Scott had previously denied to police that Natasha was there at that time, but when the police found her there, he was charged with willful obstruction. After that incident, Natasha seemed to make more of an effort at home. She tried to get along with the family and things seemed to be going smoothly. But a month later, uh, Natasha was missing again. The obvious conclusion was once again she'd run away to her boyfriend's house and police were sent to Scott's home and frighteningly, he said that he didn't know where Natasha was. And as he'd been charged previously, it seemed unlikely that he would risk another charge if she was found at his home. His home was searched and there was no sign of Natasha. This was even more worrying. If she wasn't with Scott, where on earth could she have gone? She was only 14. She was reported missing the next day to police. And Natasha had a history of running away and... Those cases are not as likely to get immediate attention as ones where it's out of the ordinary to be missing. But this did not seem like a normal case of a runaway child where it had been planned. Her clothes were still in the wardrobe. She only seemed to have taken the items that she'd taken to school that day and no money. And things were going well at home now. There was no obvious reason for Natasha to leave. Two days after she'd gone missing, there was a sighting reportedly of her playing video games at a movie complex. She was seen getting into a car with a man voluntarily. School staff told police that Natasha was a troubled student. She had sought help previously from child mental health services and been prescribed medication. After a week, her parents were seriously concerned and they couldn't help feeling that her absence this time was different. She'd never run away from home for that long and they were sure she would have contacted them. The usual places to look like a boyfriend's home, her friend's homes and her father's home in Bundaberg 
had all been checked by police and they'd come up empty. A month went past and there was no sign of Natasha. Police now issued the first public appeal for Natasha. The appeal seemed to have been framed in terms relevant to a runaway situation, with the police urging the public to let them know that she was safe, even if through a third party, anything, just let them know. But the public appeal didn't bring any useful leads and months went by. Months later, her mother said, I don't believe Natasha would have let me go through all the pain if she was out there. Searches were conducted by the police and emergency service volunteers, but nothing was found. She'd vanished. Her friends were interviewed by police, but they seemed genuine that they didn't know anything about Natasha's whereabouts. One friend told Now to Love magazine that he was broken when Natasha went missing. I cried every single night because I believed Natasha was dead. Two years went past and the police brought this young man who was Natasha's friend in for questioning. He was just 16. Police questioned him but he was unable to assist them with any information about Natasha's disappearance and he was not charged. The experience changed him though. The news of his trip to the police station spread through the small town and he felt that people were looking at him like he was a suspect and eventually the family moved from the area. Around this time, police were well aware that there was a number of disappearances of women in the area, and they suspected there was a serial killer operating in the area of Rockhampton. The last to disappear was just a child. Kyra Steinhardt, who was just nine years old, Kyra disappeared eight months after Natasha went missing. This time the police would catch a break. There was a witness and he provided information to the police and that information ultimately led them to their suspect. His name was Leonard Fraser, a career criminal that had done time for horrendous crimes and now was a suspected serial killer. A prison psychiatrist had previously declared him to be an untreatable psychopath. He was charged and convicted of Kyra's abduction, rape and murder on 7th of September 2000, meaning a minimum term of 30 years. A search of his home at the time of his arrest unveiled a selection of trophies, ponytails of hair, Many of these ponytails belong to women that have never been accounted for. Prisoners that commit crimes against children are never popular in the general inmate population of prison and in Australia they are known as rock spiders and are often targeted for violence. Leonard Fraser was concerned that he would soon become the latest target in prison. Police believed that he may be responsible for the murder of other women that had disappeared, including Natasha, and the ponytail collection made them suspicious he was a serial killer. By this time, Natasha's family had come to accept that she would not be returning home, and they set about turning what should have been her 17th birthday celebration into a memorial service on the 9th of May 2001. Seventy of Natasha's loved ones attended and balloons were released. Memories were shared. A video of Natasha as a bridesmaid at her father's wedding to her stepmother Debbie played in the background. People mourned the girl who would never be able to do all the things that teenagers do. Graduate from high school, date, share in all the family's events and experiences. At all of these times, they'd be missing that one person. By now, police were convinced that Leonard Fraser could be responsible for Natasha's disappearance. He had been in the area at the time. However, they had no evidence at that time. They were unable to connect the dots to charge him with it. Then they got a break. Leonard had been quite chatty with a fellow inmate, Alan Quinn, who he knew from his previous times in jail. 
and Alan Quinn approached the police and agreed to pass on information that Leonard Fraser was providing him with. When the police agreed to this, the later conversations were recorded. During his conversations, Leonard Fraser disclosed details that the police felt only the person responsible for the murders would know. One of those things was where remains of several of his victims could be found. At some stage, Leonard Fraser became aware that Alan Quinn was a police informant, but eventually he shared with Alan Quinn that he also killed Natasha Ryan. He told Alan that he'd met Natasha at the cinema in Rockhampton, offered her a ride to Yapoon, and detailed what he'd done and where he had buried her. But he wanted a deal. If he confessed, and he confessed to the four murders that Task Force Alex was investigating, he wanted something in return. The victims he confessed to killing were Beverly Lego, who was 36, Sylvia Benedetti, who was 19, Julie Turner, who was 39, and Natasha Ryan, who was 14 at the time of her disappearance. All had gone missing in the Rockhampton area during 1998 and 1999, but he would only confess if he was moved to the John Oxley Memorial Hospital rather than stay in prison. He was already in jail for life and his confession and details of where the remains were would ensure the families could lay their loved ones to rest. And sometimes that's more important than seeing a trial through. So the police made the decision to do a deal with him. The 3rd of December 2001, with prompting from Alan Quinn, he'd drawn maps showing where the bodies were. And on the 21st of that month, he was escorted by the police to the area. Earlier, a member of the public had already discovered the remains of Sylvia Benedetti in the same area. The search began in earnest for the bodies, and more than 100 state emergency service volunteers gave up weekends to carry out the search. Extensive areas of bushland were burned, and the search for the remains was estimated to cost over $400,000. Eventually, they uncovered the remains of Beverly and Julie, including items of clothing where Leonard Fraser had indicated they would be found. He was then charged with the murders of all four women. Two years after, Natasha had disappeared, but her remains were the only ones that were not located in that search. The police then had the difficult task of letting Natasha's parents know that a confessed serial killer had claimed responsibility for the death of their daughter. I cannot imagine the trauma this family went through, imagining what the fate of their daughter had been and wondering if they would ever be able to find her remains to give her a final resting place. The map that Leonard Fraser drew and the details he gave of Natasha's burial site did not result in any fines. Fraser told an inmate he was getting frustrated because police couldn't find the remains using the maps. Eventually Fraser denied he killed Natasha and said that she was alive and well and living in Rockhampton and by this stage he was no longer cooperating with police. In April 2003, the trial of Leonard Fraser began at the Queensland Supreme Court, where he would be sentenced for the murders of four women he had confessed to, including Natasha Ryan. Natasha's body was the only one that had not been recovered. On the 10th of April, which was the 11th day of the trial, Natasha's father, Robert, was at court and maybe he was wondering if today would be the day that he would find out what happened to his daughter. And no doubt he wanted to see the man that could take his girl away and hopefully see justice done. Before Robert could take a seat in court though, a police investigator took him aside and walked him outside. He said to him, we've found a woman that we believe is Natasha, but we want you to speak to her and see if you can confirm it. This wasn't a body. The police had found a woman who was alive and well. Robert took the phone trying to process this new information and a female voice spoke to him. 
It had been five years since he'd heard his daughter's voice and his mind had already processed that she was murdered and taken by a serial killer from him. But there was something about the voice and the insistence of the police that he spoke with her. And he wasn't sure if it was Natasha's voice, so he asked her a question only she would know. The pet name he called her. The female voice said, I love you very much, Daddy, and it's Grasshopper. Robert nearly collapsed. It was his daughter. An officer then called Natasha's mother, Jenny. She couldn't take in what he was saying and assumed at first they'd found her daughter's body. Not a daughter alive. And it took a bit to realise that this was real. The prosecutor, Paul Rutledge, then had the task of making legal history in Australia. He returned to court saying, I'm pleased to inform the court that Leonard John Fraser is not guilty of the murder of Natasha Ann Ryan. Natasha Ryan is alive. He also advised that the prosecution would still be pursuing the charges relating to the other three victims. Justice Ambrose adjourned the court until Monday so the defence could decide if a mistrial should occur. The court was stunned and the media went crazy. This scenario has never been imagined and it was unheard of. The trial of Leonard Fraser though continued, amended to the three victims with neither prosecution or defence requesting a mistrial. But where had Natasha been? When Natasha was dropped off at school that day, she attended a few classes, but then she had words with a teacher and she left. She took herself off to the cinema and called Scott to get her. She was upset, possibly depressed, and had threatened to harm herself. So he took her home to Yapoon. When the police arrived to question him, he lied to them about her whereabouts, just like he'd done previously. And when they searched his property, Natasha was in hiding, maybe in the roof cavity. Days turned into weeks, turned into months and years. The couple ended up creating an odd and bizarre, isolated little home for themselves. Terrified of being recognised and getting her and Scott in trouble, the two lived life with the curtains drawn, the TV volume down, and Natasha never leaving the home in daylight. In fact, over the years that they lived in this world, she only left at night on a few occasions, hidden in the back of her boyfriend's ute, and then only to go somewhere secluded like the beach. Her life would be spent working out in the home gym for an hour or so, teaching herself to sew to make clothes, and repurposing old towels for feminine products, as well as cleaning their home. Her clothes were never hung out on the washing line, and Scott, a supposedly single man, couldn't risk purchasing women's clothing. Scott's neighbours, family and colleagues thought he was a single man, living alone with few friends and no girlfriend. Some of the neighbours felt sorry for the young guy who never seemed to have a social life and kept his house in darkness. Scott would leave for work from 2am to 4am for his job as a milkman, but he'd return home for lunch. Natasha would then have his company. Instead of going to school and learn and hang out with kids her own age, she used the computer to learn German. Days were spent watching some of the many videos they'd acquired, playing with her cat, reading and cleaning. Sometimes she would peek out from the space in the curtain and check out the million dollar views from their home. But it was always from the inside. Eventually Scott's work transferred him to Yapoon and they moved in the middle of the night with Natasha hiding. Their house in Yupoon was surrounded by fences to make sure that no one could see inside. It wouldn't matter anyway because the curtains were all drawn shut. When they first moved in, a neighbour complained about loud music to Scott and he was furious that she'd come onto his property. He'd been drinking that day and told her to never trespass on his land again. After that, there was no loud music to complain about and the neighbours never noticed any evidence of anyone but Scott living in the home. After a couple of years, the couple moved back to Rockhampton to a house just five minutes or four kilometres away from her mother's home. And Natasha said, so many times I telephoned my mum, but when I heard her voice, I put down the phone. I couldn't find the courage to speak. 
Scott didn't have many visitors to his home. Occasionally a relative and once a month or so his parents would come over for a few hours. If there was visitors to the home, Natasha would hide in the wardrobe of their room or sometimes the roof cavity. When Natasha heard that she was a victim of serial killer Leonard Fraser, she thought it was a sick joke. She even thought it may be a twisted attempt to get her to return home. On the 2nd of April 2003, as the trial of Leonard Fraser was to commence, Natasha called the kids' helpline. She told them her name was Sally and she wanted their help. She didn't know what to do. She explained that she'd left home but someone had been charged with her murder. She told the counsellor she would hide in the cupboard when someone knocked on the door. The counsellor contacted the police and reported the contents of the call, but the caller could not be traced. A week later, a note was received by the Rockhampton Police Station and it read, Natasha Ryan is alive and well. You can contact her and they gave the phone number and the trace led to a house rented by Scott Black. On the 9th of April 2003, police raided the Rockhampton house rented to Scott Black and they found her in the wardrobe sitting and shaking. She made it clear to the police that she did not want to be found and she didn't want to come with them when they found her. But she was taken and interviewed for seven hours at the police station. After confirmation from Robert Ryan that this was indeed his daughter, she was taken to her parents for an emotional reunion. Her father Robert recalled, Natasha called out Daddy and it was like seeing a ghost. He said, she's very beautiful, very pale and very confused and frightened. But she's alive and that means more to me than anything. From being indoors for so long, she can't be in the sun for more than a few minutes and needs to readjust to the sunlight. Of course, not only Natasha's family and loved ones were elated that she was alive, but so was the town of Rockhampton. With a population of about 68,000, it's a large country town with the same sort of values. Rockhampton was descended upon by media from all over as the news of her reappearance made international headlines. And the family had little privacy in the days after Natasha's reappearance. Everyone wanted to know her story and she subsequently sold it to 60 Minutes and a magazine. After the initial relief that her daughter was alive, her mother struggled with how she could knowingly cause her so much pain. Initially she didn't want to see her but the pair were soon able to start repairing their relationship. And on the 30th of April 2003, Natasha gave evidence at her own murder trial. There she denied ever knowing Leonard Fraser and confirmed her identity. Jeannie, Natasha's mother, recalls that this was a particularly difficult period for Natasha, saying they tried to make out that she was a liar, that she knew Leonard Fraser and so on, and it put a lot of strain on her. She said with the media and TV and things like that, it doesn't make it any easier because Natasha just seems to withdraw back into her shell. The media coverage though did stir up some hard feelings in the town of Rockhampton. It was reported that Natasha had been paid $200,000 for the interviews and this was incorrect, it was $120,000. And the people of Rockhampton especially felt that money should be returned to the government coffers particularly the police service and the state emergency services who had spent money, time and resources searching for someone that was not missing at all. Rockhampton's Morning Bulletin newspaper says, while letters from readers initially expressed surprise and relief at her reappearance, they now reflected anger and annoyance. Over the years, Natasha has been asked many times why she left but she's never said anything definitive. She said in an interview, I'm not sure it would make any difference saying why I left. I feel whatever I say wouldn't be good enough for the pain I've caused my family. Both Natasha Ryan and Scott Black were charged by the police. 
Scott was charged with perjury for lying to police about Natasha's whereabouts and he pled guilty and in 2005 Rockhampton District Court Judge Grant Britton sentenced him to a three-year jail sentence with two years suspended. And in 2006, Natasha was found guilty of causing a false police investigation and she was fined $1,000 at Rockhampton Magistrates Court. The police had wanted her to contribute to some of the search costs for the missing four women, which they had estimated at $151,000. Police prosecutor Terry Gardner produced the $120,000 contract Ryan had signed with the media outlet as evidence of her ability to pay back some of that money. However, Magistrate Annette Hennessy disagreed and ruled that Ryan didn't have the means to pay the costs of the investigation. In the same court proceedings, Scott Black was also convicted and fined $3,000 and ordered to pay 16000 towards investigation. Leonard Fraser appealed his sentencing to the Queensland Court of Appeal. His basis of appeal was that he was not given a fair trial, and based on whether the information obtained by Alan Quinn should have been used as evidence in the trial. As today's case is not about Leonard Fraser, I won't discuss the details but his appeal was unsuccessful and he died on the 1st of January 2007 of a heart attack. In 2008, Scott and Natasha were married and they sold the rights to their wedding photos to Woman's Day magazine. They are still married and have four children together. Natasha returned to school and studied at university. She trained as a nurse and works in Queensland and those who have been under her care say that she is caring and well-trained. If you found this case interesting, please consider taking a moment to leave a review. It really helps me out. If you would like to hear more true crime cases from me, consider subscribing to the podcast. Until next time, be kind to each other and stay safe out there.